Tonight we are looking at the book of Esther, chapter 3, and you'll find it on page 503. That's the book of Esther, chapter 3, page 503 in the Church Bible. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you the king's, disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it, to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pure, that is, the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adol. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to him, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people, all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various people. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law 
in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Leslie Ann, thank you for reading. Uh, let me pray as we come to look at this part of God's Word. Uh, Lord God, every part of Scripture uh, has been written uh, to encourage us and give us hope. It seems hard in this part, uh, but please would you do that work uh, uh, for us today as we, as we listen to your Word, encourage us, your people, who have set out to follow you. Amen. If, you, if you've been with us, we've been engaging with this story. It's an intriguing story in all sorts of ways. We've, we said, haven't we? Interesting that this book never mentions God explicitly. I, I guess the question is, what, what do you make of a chapter like that? We've, we've sung a song earlier that says, in the darkness we were waiting without hope and without light. It feels like that in this chapter. Just for a moment, it's been a warm afternoon. You can be a bit sleepy after a while. So if you're happy to, just with somebody's nearby, you can sit and think about this yourself. If somebody's nearby and you're happy to chat, what do you make of that chapter? What catches your attention? Uh, what do you think about the characters in it? I'll give you just 30 seconds or so uh, to turn uh, and talk with somebody nearby. Okay, let me, let me break back in there. Can, can I just say, following on that, there's, it is really good to read the Bible by yourself um, and to think about it and pray, and we should do that. I think there's other parts of the Bible, and this is one of them, where stories like this, where, where there's real benefit in talking about it with others who've read it. What, what do you think of this? It, it doesn't, a bit like this doesn't just drop out all its, all its wisdom to you uh, 
in a sense, they're, they're not all parceled up for you. It kind of presents stuff, and it says you ponder and think about the story and inhabit it in some ways. You begin to think and realize, oh, this is what it's getting at. There's details that are intriguing. Just we come into, let me say that you, you kind of know this. There, there's things in life, isn't there, where, where this is really about that. This small thing is really about that bigger thing. You see bucket and spades, and you're thinking beach holidays, perhaps, if you see them again. Or you see fireworks, and you're thinking uh, fourth, uh, oh, you, what are you thinking about? Fifth of November. Can't even get the dates right. Or New Year. You see red roses, and maybe you're thinking, uh, romance, um, where this small thing is actually about something bigger. Somebody told me, I wasn't going to mention this, but it just come to mind again. Somebody told me once that at their church, the vicar's wife was slightly in despair of some of the young men who she thought were slightly useless at expressing in helpful ways their interest in some of the, the young women at the church. It didn't know what to do to invite them around for dinner, so she taught them a recipe. Um, here's a meal you could cook if you wanted to invite someone around and Im impress them in some way. It was this chicken dish. The trouble was, news of it got out around the church. Um, and if you were a young woman and you got invited around for dinner and this particular chicken dish appeared on the table, you thought, oh gosh. I've just discovered that this thing is actually about something slightly bigger uh, than I thought it was. This is about that. But, but you know that, don't you? Um, keep that in mind, that kind of thing, where, where this is actually going to teach you about that, because it will help you with this part of Esther, which is filled with hostility. I mean, it really is. There's no way around it. Yet within the, the deep darkness, if you like, as we've sung about, there is a light that begins to shine. Uh, the chapter is, is filled with hostility, but look, as you, as you get into it, you, you begin to notice that some hostility is even bigger than you think. Just in this chapter here, the, the book of Esther, it often deliberately, I think, wrong foots us. So if you were here last week, you remember at the end of the last chapter, Mordecai, this Jewish man who'd been amongst the exiles, in some ways, he is, he is working for the king. He, I guess he's like a, a civil servant in some way. He's working for the king, and he ends up actually saving the king's life, and, and it's recorded. It's almost funny when you think about it. The most powerful man in the world, Xerxes, is saved by one of God's weak-looking people. But that's what happens. So at the beginning of chapter 3 begins, uh, when it begins like this, after these events, do you see that in, in verse 1? After these events, King Xerxes honored, and you're wrong-footed. I think you're meant to be wrong-footed when it's not Mordecai's name that's mentioned. I mean, it feels unfair, doesn't it? It's, it's, the book is set as up. M Mordecai has saved the king. After these events, the king ordered. It's obvious what should be written there. It should be Mordecai, but it's not him. And it, I think you're meant to feel it's unfair. Uh, and you wonder if that's what our author is helping us feel. Because you live in a world like that, where the virtuous get missed, where good deeds are forgotten. 
I mean, it's that kind of feeling. If you can't see what you're going to get in return, what's the point of doing anything? I mean, if you do a good thing for someone and you, you don't get anything good in return, what, what's been uh, the point of it? It feels like that, doesn't it? And, then, and the forgetting of Mordecai seems to prove the point. This is what happens. Good people do good things and they get ignored. It's not much point. By the time we get to, to chapter 6 in this book, remember, we're going through a whole story. This book will be trying to persuade us there's good reasons to do good. I mean, generally in principle, and also even for unexpected outcomes. But as this chapter goes on, it's not just that Mordecai's good deed gets forgotten. His whole life, as you read it, looks like it is just flown off the edge of a cliff. He saved the king's life, and now a law from the king, by the time you get to the end of the chapter, is going to wipe him out. Uh, we get the details, don't we? Verse 2, if you have a look at it, the, the king has commanded Haman's to be honored by everyone. But Mordecai, for some reason, won't join in with the kneeling. He's not going to kneel down for Haman. He's not going to uh, honor him in that way. And you might be thinking as you read this story, I think you meant to, good move, bad move. What, what do you think? Like, Mordecai, why don't you just do it? Why aren't you making a a fuss about this. The Bible doesn't seem to give a comment on whether it's a good move or a bad move. It doesn't tell us one way or the other. But he gives other details. And it's always really in this book worth noticing the details. Uh, the way Mordecai does this, he's not doing it right up in Haman's face. Do you get that as you, you read it? This is not throwing an egg at him or something like that. Haman doesn't know about it. Haman's not spotted it. It's not been done so obviously that Haman's seeing it. This is Mordecai saying, I'm, I'm not going to do this. Verse 3, it's co-workers of Mordecai. <laughs> uh, they're the ones that spot it. Uh, you, you're not doing this thing, are you? Uh, maybe it takes them a while to spot it. You, it's co-workers that say, well, you don't do this kneeling down thing, do you? you? You don't seem to honor him in the same way. And over a period of time, verse 3 and verse 4, they're pushing him on it. Why don't you do this? And when he won't comply, verse 4, it seems they think, well, let's tell Haman. See what happens. Uh, let's put in a, a little official complaint uh, about Mordecai. They're stirring the pot and they're cooking up some trouble. It's not the kind of thing that ever happens in a workplace, does it? Co-workers stirring up trouble for someone, but he hears where it's going on. And Haman's reaction, I mean, it's off the scale, isn't it? it as you, you read it. Verse 5, he's not just put out, not a bit annoyed or a bit irked. Mm. He doesn't, his response is not, oh yeah, Mordecai's a bit like that. Just, just ignore him. Get on with it. He does a good job. No, he's enraged. And keep noticing with this book, the way it wants to show is the character of this kingdom. Remember back in chapter one, it, it feels like a generous kingdom. There's wealth, there's opulence. The king invites people to parties. There's all sorts of things going on like that. But Back in chapter 1, do you remember, a command is disobeyed, the king's enraged, and the response is off the scale. Chapter 3, a command's disobeyed, Haman's enraged, and the response is off the scale. You, 
you just feel the narrative as you inhabit it. This is saying to us, look, beware of leadership that never draws respect, only ever commands it. Be aware of leadership that's not content to, to lead, but needs to control everything, wants everything controlled. Be aware of authority that won't just let you do your job, that forces you to publicly affirm them all the time. You see what this book is doing? Just watch out for authority. It might look like a nice kingdom to live in, but just notice its character. Feel what it's like if you go out of step. Perhaps you, you felt it somewhere yourself in work or, or at school, the, the pressure to affirm the latest popular thinking. You, you're not trying to make a fuss. But it can happen in all sorts of ways. The colleague says, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Why are you not joining in with this? I remember my friend Ken telling me there was some uh, work colleagues that were all going out. It was just men. Uh, and they'd been out, going out for a drink, and then one of them, one of the senior managers, said to, to them, right, let's all go to this strip club. And Ken says, uh, I'm not going to go there. And his boss said, yes, you will, unless you want me to think badly of you. You feel the pressure. And he's, uh, he said to his boss, your opinion doesn't mean that much to me. And that's a hard thing to say, though, isn't it? Or someone says, why are you not wearing that rainbow lanyard? And you might argue, well, wear it, don't wear it. It's a wisdom call. And you're in a situation where you don't want to be unkind, you're not unfriendly, you're not telling people which way they can live or, or not, but you, you begin to feel the pressure of things like that. Already there are things where you begin to feel, if I don't comply, someone's going to be angry. Verse 4, back in the chapter, is one of those details as well where you begin to sense this, this thing that's going on is really about that. The hostility between Haman and Mordecai is really about a bigger thing. See how the verse ends. See how verse 4 ends? What they say, for he had told them, this is to his work colleagues, he was a Jew. And then as it goes on, as that's mentioned to Haman, for Haman, killing Mordecai was not going to be enough. He wants to kill all of his people. What is going on? I mean, it just seems beyond belief, doesn't it? Back in verse 1, here's some of the details the chapter puts in. Do you see what we're told about Haman? It, we're told he's, it puts it like this, doesn't it? Haman, the Agagite. Do you notice that? It's a funny thing, isn't it? It's the kind of thing you just pass over as you're reading it. What does that mean? Back in 1 Samuel 15, you, you can look at it uh, um, uh, later, if you want, during the time when Saul was king, we discovered that Agag uh, was a king of the Amalekites. And if you didn't know them, you can read about them in Exodus and Deuteronomy. God's people were on their way out of Egypt in the wilderness. And we read this in Deuteronomy. Have I got this on the screen? Yeah, I have. God says this, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. 
When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. That was the, the Amalekites. They were opposed to God, no fear of Him. They saw an opportunity for material gain. Here's a weary people. We can just come up, and the ones that are lagging behind, particularly the weak and the slow, we can, we can kill them, we can steal their stuff. And God said in defense of His people, He would always be at war with them. He would be opposed to them, and they become, in a sense, the, a symbol of, of people who, who live this way, ignoring God and wanting to exploit others. This personal hostility in chapter 3 is really the latest episode of a more ancient hostility. Now, it's true sometimes, isn't it? For us as God's people, we, we, we face hostility in the same way that everyone does. I get picked on at school sometimes. Uh, Mark, in my uh, year at school, on the way back from swimming, said, I'm going to fight you after school. I don't want to fight him. I said, I, I don't really want to. And he said, we're going to anyway. I got picked on that day. It wasn't because I was a Christian. It just happens. And some of you have had experiences like that. I've been shouted at by angry drivers. Not because I was a Christian, and I assure you, not because I didn't anything wrong on the road. There was just an angry driver. You've had that experience, I guess, many of you as well. You've been shouted at by people. It's really upsetting. It's not. It's good. You, you face hostility at times. I was alive when Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands. They didn't do that because I was a Christian. But I live in a world where things like that happen. And it's sad, as sad as they are. Many of us experience hostility. Christian or not Christian. But this passage is saying, look, some hostility is bigger than you think. And you need to know that. You need to know that stands behind it sometimes. You need to know that if you take a stand as one of God's people, whether you're at school, whether you're at university, in the workplace, or among friends, or even with family, there do come times where if you take a stand as one of God's people, sometimes the response might go off the deep end. Even if the thing you did seemed pretty low-key and was personal to you, there is a bigger hostility that sometimes finds you. Now, can you just think how Mordecai might have been feeling He's made a personal stand. He's done something. And then the law is published. Imagine how he feels. Imagine how you would feel. You do a little thing, and then the impact is going to be felt by all your people. Gosh, that's hard, isn't it, to get your head around? But here's the first thing. Look, some hostility is bigger than you think. Keep how Mordecai must be feeling it. And let's come on to the second thing, which is look at God's providence and his promises are enough to give you hope. Well, we'll unpack that a little bit. There's quite a lot in that, isn't there? This chapter's heading one way, from bad to worse, and then from worse to catastrophic. By verse 12, this law has been published. And did you notice the way it was framed, what, what people were going to be allowed to do to destroy, kill, and annihilate? It's, it's probably written in a legal way like this, just to make sure it's clear, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. And remember from chapter 1, if, if you were here with us a couple of weeks ago when we did that, laws, it's been, it's been spelled out to it, laws that are published in this way, you can't reverse them. They can't be revoked. 
Uh, this is locked down and locked in. It is irreversible. That's what we're being presented with here. The darkness of this kingdom looks so deep, you can't imagine any light or any hope breaking through. But look, some does. It's helpful for us to know that. We said the other week, in a, in a dark way, this is, this is a laughable kingdom. Just notice in it, it, it is filled with superstitious leaders. Did you notice in verse 7, Haman making big decisions about dates to do things by, by casting a lot. There's some sense that there's unknown powers at work for him, and, and he wants them on site. I mean, it seems like a strange thing. He's, he's got all this power, but he casts lots to get it done. It reminded me of, not quite in the same way of, how do you say it? Is it Mauricio Pochettino? The, the former Spurs manager, uh, I heard a, an interview with him where the interviewer said, uh, why do you have, why do you keep a big bowl of lemons in your office? Have you ever heard this interview? It's fascinating. Uh, the former Spurs manager, where is he now? Is he at PSG or something like that? I think he's, he, Scott, where is he? He's jobless. He needs more lemons, and I'll tell you why. He keeps a big bowl of lemons. The interviewer said to him, why do you keep a big bowl of lemons in your office, and his answer, and I kid you not, it was some people come into his office and they have bad energy. Lemons absorb that energy. Isn't that fascinating? Here's a man, in fact, I was going to say at the top of his game, but he's jobless now, so, <laughs> so that's unfair. He's a, he's a good manager. Um, but isn't it fascinating that people who can have all sorts of leadership positions be massively successful, and yet superstitious like that. That's Haman as well. There's also kind of manipulative schemers in this kingdom. Do you notice the way Haman talks to Xerxes in verses 8 and 9 as he sets up his plan? He doesn't mention the name of the people. There's a certain people. And he calls them a threat, but he doesn't quite spell it out. And he brought, promises benefit for the king's treasury. You get the way this kingdom operates. It's manipulative. It's all vague and it's underhand. And then there's also a clueless king. Xerxes is the ruler of the world, and he doesn't know the details of anything going on. He just passes out his signet ring. Oh, do, keep the money. Put your wallet away, Haman. Put your wallet away. We'll cover it. Do the law any way you want and, and pass the wine. Let's have another drink. He is a clueless king. Throughout this story, every, you can check through it. Every decision he makes, Xerxes, is suggested by someone else. This is a laughable kingdom. But it's almost even more frightening because of that, because of the way it operates. Imagine living in that so where's the hope for them, and where's the hope for us? Let me show you some details. Look, Haman's got a plan, and he wants to wipe out God's people. Being superstitious, he casts the lot to choose the best month to do it in. There in the first month, and just have a look. Where does the lot last? Uh, where does the lot land? What month is it going to be? The twelfth month. Isn't that interesting? It could happen any time. Uh, yes, what's the chances of that? But I mean, even I'm good enough to know my stats. It's, it's a one in 12 chance, isn't it, really? So, but it just so happens to land as far away as it possibly could. He cast a lot, 
and alas, that way. And you think, well, that's lucky, isn't it? I mean, it's not spared the people, but it's given them a bit of breathing room. That's lucky, isn't it? Then the date the decree goes out. Do you notice that? Let me find that verse again. I've not written it down. Um, Where are the verses? Where is it? If If you find the verse, shout it out. Verse 12, verse 7 or 12. I can't even find verse 12. Yeah, there it is. Uh, then on the 13th day of the first month, that's when, that's when the decree goes out. Um, some dates are significant, aren't they? Keep that one in mind, the 13th day of the first month. Some, some dates are significant. So if I say 4th of July, what are you thinking? Yeah, American Rebellion Day. That's it. We'll call it that. American Independence Day, 11th of November, Armistice Day, Remembrance Day, Armistice Day, Remembrance Day, 3rd of October, my birthday, uh, my birthday. (laughs) Some dates are significant. This date, this date, the Jewish calendar was set from, uh, from the time of the first Passover. That's when the first month was. When God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, God said he was going to come in judgment and and rescue them from Egypt. Thing was, his people weren't perfect either. So in order to rescue them, he would need to release them from Egypt, but also find a way to pass over them in judgment. How can a just God do that? Well, there would need to be a substitute. And if you know the story, the substitute paying the price for them, they were told to take a lamb and it would be sacrificed in place of them and its blood would be put on the doorposts of their house. And when God came to judge, when he came over Egypt in judgment, he would see the blood shed and think, that's paid the price for the people in this home and he would pass over their houses. And then after that, he would bring them out of slavery in Egypt. The day of the Passover. Do you know when that was? And if you don't, let me tell you. It was the 14th day of the first month. The day when Haman's law is published is the 13th day of the first month. A writer is very subtle. He doesn't make a big thing of it. He just drops the date in. But I think what you're meant to do is imagine. Can you imagine a Jewish family on that day hearing the law saying, in one year you'll all be killed. And the next day you sit down with family and friends and people are bewildered. Children are looking frightened and they're looking at dads. What are we going to do? And he serves up the lamb. What's he going to say? And he says, we are in great danger. But remember, we were slaves in Egypt, in danger of God's judgment ourselves, but God provided a lamb. And he passed over our sin. He spared our lives and he saved us, and he made a covenant commitment to us. And although that was a long time ago, he will not have forgotten his promise. So whatever happens now, 
our lives are held in his hands. Who could arrange dates like that? Who could arrange a delay of a year? Who could arrange a law published the day before the Passover? The book of Esther is saying to us, you do not live in a world where things happen by chance. Your destiny is not in the hands of the powerful proud or manipulative schemers. What do you understand by the providence of God? What do you understand by God's providence? Here's some words. God's almighty and ever-present power by which he upholds as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. As Mordecai and his people had no additional words of comfort, but they had God's providential care and God's covenant promise. Christian, and you might be going through all sorts of things at the moment. There might be things that feel not on this scale, but a big enough scale for you. Christian, God's providence is your hand held in God's hand now, right now, and whatever else you're going through. In this world, you will face hostility at times, and sometimes that hostility will be bigger than you think. And there will be moments when you think, have I done the right thing? Have I made the right choice? Have we made the right stance? Things are feeling hostile. People don't like me being a Christian. At that moment, we don't look back to the Passover but to the real Lamb of God and His blood shed for our forgiveness at the cross, and we know God is for us, and we trust He is providentially working in all details, even if we have no other words of encouragement. God's providence and His gospel promises, dear friends, they really are enough to give you hope. Uh, we're going to sing again in a moment. Uh, the band are going to come back up. But I'm conscious that there may be things that you are facing that you're finding hard. God's providence, in, in some ways, it, it's a hard truth, isn't it? Because it, it, isn't, it doesn't provide a quick relief from difficulties you're facing they may still continue. But it has been an encouragement down through the years for Christians to know that even in that, God has not let go of your hand. He does love you and is committed to you in the Lord Jesus and will lead you through. Can I suggest maybe we're gonna have a moment uh, just of quiet. There might be some things on your, your heart and mind that are troubling you and you just want to bring it before the Lord and say, please assure me. Please continue to assure me that you do care. 
Uh, we'll have a moment to do that. And then Matt and the band are going to lead us with our final song that, that speaks about trusting God when it seems like he's silent. And we'll sing that by way of encouragement as we draw our service to a close. So a moment and just for quiet prayer, and then we'll stand and sing.